So today we're reading um, Daniel chapter 2, um, and that can be found on page 882 in the Blue Church Bibles. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. The astrologers answered the king, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honour. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realise that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and the men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to tell them to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained that the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went in to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons and disposes kings and raises others up. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power and have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, an enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you are laying in bed are these. 
As your majesty was laying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching a rock cut out, but not by human hands, it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The winds swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beast of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they lived, he has made you ruler over them, and you are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honour and ordered that an offering of incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you are able to reveal this mystery to me. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Please excuse my croaky voice. I'm getting over that cold thing. And uh, if I'm not clear, yell at me and I'll rephrase what I said in less horrible terms uh, because of my voice. So last week, Mike, if you were here, got us thinking from Daniel chapter 1 about how the Christian line in the sand, as we live in our culture, is not a list of rules, but a resolve to uphold the glory of God and how that should frame all of our choices as we do life. And as we get to Daniel 2 this morning, we are going to lift our eyes higher and look and see how God is at work 
at a nation and a kingdom level. You see, if Daniel chapter 1 is kind of street view living, Daniel chapter 2 is worldview literature. It is designed to give us a massive shake-up on our theological Richter scale, causing us to see how the world runs beyond our little space, beyond the, the, the little life we live here, to give us proper perspective and hope and purpose that we need to live well. Someone has once said, how can you hide a rhino standing in the middle of a room? How can you hide a rhino standing in the middle of a room? You fill the room with millions of mice. Fill the room with millions of mice. And I'm sure that for many of us, our life is kind of like that. The mice of hurry, worry, busy, scurry around us. They bury the rhino of perspective. They bury the rhino of the kingdom of God. And we get so good at trying to manage it all, don't we? Our head down, desires set to maximum. Our over-caffeinated soul is clicking and scrolling, trying to find energy to do the work, to find the balance in life, that we've lost sight of the bigger picture. We've lost sight of why we're here. We've lost sight of what God is actually working to in our life. Or even still, we haven't even got a clue what life is all about. All we see is mice. And I know that I've been there too. So worried about what's going on, so focused with these little things in my life. They're not little things, by any means, they're big things, but they've crowded out the rhino. And what we're confronted with in Daniel 2 is the good news that while God does indeed love us deeply, God is actually working to a bigger plan for history than just you. God did not breathe a sigh of relief when Jesus saved me as if to say, good. Now I can do what I planned because Luke is here. The universe does not have to hold its breath in anticipation. It's not going to fall off its axis of the earth revolving around the sun because Luke is now in the kingdom of God. I can do what I planned. I needed him else. Everything is gone over and I have to start again. I have no idea what to do. God did not say that about you and me. I'm not what the world needs to keep on spinning. It is not like what God said to you and me, what... Um, Princess Leia did to Obi-Wan Kenobi. And when R2-D2 got to Tantooine and she, the droid opens up and the wonderful message says, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're our only hope. The wonderful, freeing and confronting reality is that you and me are not God's hope for eternity. Jesus is. Jesus and his kingdom are. And all of that to say is that the theological center of these 49 verses that Daniel wants to keep in mind, that God wants to keep in mind for us, is that God is ruling over all the kings of the earth, even when they collide, even when there's conflict, even when the political landscape has changed so very much, when we're going to vote next week and we have no idea what's going to happen, God is ruling over that, even when life turns upside down, because in the end, he's going to undo every other kingdom and firmly establish his good rule. And for Daniel and the people living in exile, all those years ago, far from their safe home, far from all they've known, filled with pain, insecurity, worry, hurt, being thrust out of where they are all the way into Babylon, not knowing what the future is going to hold. Daniel has just told them in this, hey guys, God's on the throne and Nebuchadnezzar is under God's rule. God's got it. And that same concrete hope 
is what we need today. And so as we spend time sitting in, in God's word and hearing the story of Daniel 2 a bit more, we will see why the kingdom of God is the better one to lay claim to, especially in conflict, and ask the question that Daniel 2 really poses for us is, which kingdom will you live for? The one with God or the one that you make for yourself? And maybe you're here today and you've never really given much thought to God in this bigger picture that I'm talking about. Maybe for you, it's just your job and your relationships, your bank account, your family, finding a good, good cafe. This is your kingdom, right? This is your life. This is what it's about. This makes up who you are. And if that's you, I invite you to come with us today as we explore the claims that Daniel 2 makes to see there is a God whose kingdom is coming, that you're invited into his kingdom. One that will last, one that is not brittle, but is eternal. So let's look at this in three scenes. Uh, The first is 30 verses, and we see the conflict that Daniel faces. It all started in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar and his reign. And Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man on the earth at this time. He is, it's 603 BC. He's, he built the hanging gardens of Babylon. He, is a, he um, commands sages, astrologers, wise men. He's been conquering nations left, right, and center. He's inherited the kingdom from his father. He sits upon a throne in the, in the cultural hub of the world. His name comes from the Babylonian god called Nabu who was the patron god of wisdom and literature and arts and culture. He is the guy. Yet for all his wealth, all his prosperity, we don't see him sitting on his throne. We see him in his pajamas, in his bedroom. And on this particular art, Nebuchadnezzar has some dreams that leave his spirit, they leave his mind in a state of fear and shock. His mind's troubled and he could not sleep. Troubled carries the idea of like impelling and thrusting. It's as if this dream has beaten him to a pulp. So much anxiety has come upon him when he's opened his eyes. He can't close them and go back to sleep without the the pictures flashing in his head. It's horrendous. And what's more, what compounded this was the ancient Babylonians believed that dreams were messages from the gods. A right understanding of a dream dictated your future, how it was going to play out politically, militarily. It could be a message. So when he's afraid, the king of the biggest, wealthiest country, for all he knows, the gods are telling him something's going to happen. What is it? And and lest we think, by the way, all this dream speak is just something of the past, looking to the dreams, looking to the stars, is still very much a common practice. A book released at the end of 2018 entitled How to Connect with Your Dreams to Enrich Your Life tells us our quiet, reflective consciousness has been superseded by the busy, noisy, distractive components of modern culture. Dreams will teach you how through simple mindfulness, reflection, record-keeping, and lifestyle changes, we can enable a deeper connectivity and understanding of our dream world. This author sets out the hope that our dreams will unlock, they're going to give us hope in a busy, chaotic world and navigate the future for us well. And that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar believed. That was his life. And so he's desperate to find out what it means. And so in his pajamas, he summons all the magicians and astrologers into his bedroom and says, guys, tell me what I dreamed. All the collective wisdom of Babylon brought out of their beds, shoved in his bedchamber, 
And the irony here, of course, is that the most powerful man who's named after the God of wisdom is searching for the one thing that eludes him. And then in verse 3 to 10, he, he kind of lays the pressure on. Tell me the dream. Tell me the dream. Um, if you don't tell me, I'm going to cut you to pieces. I'm going to ruin your houses. They'll be turned into public toilets, was what they did with ruins of cities. Public toilets, you're going to be gone. Tell me the dream. However, if you tell me the dream, you're not going to believe it. You're going to be blessed so much. There's going to be so much lavish lifestyle. You're, you're not going to believe it. You're going to be sitting with me all the time. It's going to be the best. So tell me the dream. And he's functioning out of his insecurities. He's not functioning from reality here. He's going to wipe out the whole collective wisdom of his nation just so he can find out what this dream is. And as Nebuchadnezzar is finding out, and as we often find out too, all the resources we have still don't escape the fact that we are very much human, that we get afraid and we often come to the end of ourselves. The wise men think, he, oh, we've just misunderstood. He said, tell us the dream. So they ask him a second time, well, tell us. Like, you tell us what you dream, we'll consult our books and we'll relay the message and kind of make sure you're going to have a good day tomorrow. And, and, and they're shaken because he says, no, if you really know what I dream, you're really going to tell me the interpretation. And they've just had it. There's no one on earth who can tell, do what the king asks. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods and the Babylonian gods don't live among humans. It's an impossible task. And you can imagine that didn't go down well with Nebuchadnezzar. So in a flurry of chaos, the death decree goes out as all the wise men are now caught up in the king's insane, murderous agenda. Unless we think Daniel... The wise man who was filled with wisdom and tact from chapter 1 is he's avoided this somehow. He is collateral damage as well. He hasn't escaped it. Look at verse 13. The decree was issued to the, put the wise men and, and they started looking for Daniel and his friends too. Now at this point, what the author of Daniel has done is set us up to ask a very important question. Back in chapter 1, we learnt something about Daniel that is, is key to understanding what's going on at this point. If you remember back to Daniel 1, it says God gave Daniel the ability to interpret and understand dreams and visions. And so at this point, we've got to be saying to ourselves, where's Daniel? Right? The king has had the crazy dream. Daniel is the guy who can fix it, potentially, and he's not around. So where is he? How is God's kingdom going to meet the conflict in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom? And then we meet Daniel. Two things to note about Daniel. First thing we see... Very intently, Daniel is contrasted to the chaos of the king. He could not be any more different. The king is fearful and insane and anxious and, 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 and highly irrational at this point. He's influenced by a dream. I'm going to kill everyone. But Daniel's cool and he's calm. He's collected. From 2.15 to 19, he shows all the traits the king doesn't have. He's deliberately calm and wise. He's winsome. He's respectful. He knows it's a poorly executed plan. And in contrast to all the wise men comments that no God dwells among people, Daniel actually knows the God who does reach down and therefore isn't distant. And he knows how to reach up to that God too and seek him. You know, Daniel couldn't have foreseen the conflict, much like the conflict in your life. You, you did not foresee what has happened this week. You did not anticipate everything to go pear-shaped by Friday. It just happened much like Daniel faced it. But what we see is that because Daniel lives in the kingdom of God, he faces that conflict on a different playing field to the wise men. Second thing about Daniel is that in the conflict and the chaos, 
Daniel goes to the true king in confidence. David Helm says, Daniel may be self-assured, but he's not self-reliant. He's not thinking, I've got it. Yes, God has put me here. I'm the answer to all the problems the king needs. I can answer dreams. King, here we go. Boom. It is not what Daniel does. His confident rests in God, not himself. He doesn't seek mercy from the king of Babylon. He seeks the king of the cosmos. And then in 2.17, you have this strange verse that kind of moves the narrative forward a little bit, but it's very important. It says, Daniel went home. It seems really insignificant. Do you realize that in, in, in Babylon, if you wanted to hear from the gods, you had to go to a temple and sleep for the night. That's what you do to hear from the gods. That's how you get visions. You sleep in the temple. And Daniel has said, get this, I'll show you the dream, but I'm going to go home. And when he gets home, he doesn't stick up a Facebook poll. He doesn't Google the answer. He says, guys, we've got a problem. How will we pray and seek the God of all mercy and comfort and see if he's got anything to say about this? And if that's not ridiculous enough, Daniel then says, guys, I'm going to go to sleep now. Like in the middle of the conflict, I got my head's going to be lopped off. I'm going to have a nap. Not an anxious sleep, but a peaceful, restful trust in his God. All the wise men of Babylon wouldn't have done that. They couldn't have done that. You know, and I think if we were to look at the book of Daniel at this point, we'd have to say that we're more like the wise men than Daniel. I know I am at times. How often do we plan and we seek and we write lists and we spend hours scrolling through sites, watching videos, using up so much brain space to figure out the problems we face, the conflict that's going on in our little kingdom. And often all we need to do is simply to go home, turn off the distractions, seek God's mercy through prayer. It's not that they're wrong. It's just we flip the order. I'll do everything I can, and if it doesn't work, I'll go to God. Instead of, why don't I go to God first and rest and trust Him and then make my move? Makes you wonder what real wisdom, real wisdom looks like, doesn't it? It's just like the psalmist said in Psalm 46, and this is incredible. You may know verse 10, but in verse 1, we learn that the, the psalmist, his whole world is falling down around him. There is kingdom and conflict. The, he says the earth is groaning and giving way like everything in his life is upside down. And he cries out and says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. And in all the loud, busy, crazy, in verse 10, God interjects and speaks to the psalmist. And with his head spinning from all of his, he says, he says be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted in the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. You see, the simple, refreshing way of Jesus isn't complicated. Trouble is, it's just often not our first thought. And for Daniel, in that quiet place of trust and confidence, during the night, we read, the mystery was revealed in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. In the same way that Nebuchadnezzar had a fearful dream, Full of confusion, God met Daniel in his dream with peace and understanding. And then before rushing off to the king, Daniel's prayer leads to praise about the greatness of God's revelation, the sovereignty over kings, how he is pleased to give wisdom to reveal deep and hidden things to those who he asks. And then he's standing before the king, dripping with only the confidence that God provides. And Daniel makes it very clear. He says, King, um, no wise man, no enchanter, and no one can actually explain the mystery that you've asked. 
But there is a God in heaven. But God, you should look at that phrase in, in, in the Bible throughout one day. So many times, but God appears and when it appears. Brilliant thing to do. You see, King, it's actually because of God's agenda I'm here. And it's actually because you've got a part to play in what God's doing that he's told me to tell you what's going on. And that's the end of scene one. You know, the credits roll and, oh, I want to see the next one. You have to wait a whole week, maybe, or you just binge watch the rest of the show. And that's scene one. Daniel's before the king, the dream's on his lips. Two days of chaos. Daniel's probably the only one that's had a good night's sleep. What's going to happen? Well, tune in next week and we know. Scene two is here. We finally get to see what cost the king the sleepless nights, the almost heads of the wise men. It's, it's simple. Here's the dream. In the dream, there was a gloriously frightening image of a statue. It had a golden head, the rest of its body made from other minerals and resources, bronze, silver, iron, clay, that sort of thing. It's magnificent. It's a statue of human achievement. Nebuchadnezzar, as we learn, is the symbolic head of the rest of this body, of all the kingdoms that are going to come after him. Then out of nowhere, this rock comes and just, boom, blows over the statue, shatters it to a million pieces. They blow away in the wind. It's as if the statue never existed. And this rock suddenly just goes, bloop, and expands across the whole earth and becomes this kingdom, something that all the kingdoms of this statue could never achieve. This rock has just done it. The stone did what they couldn't. What's more, this mountain, this rock, is not the work of a human. It is the work of God, the hand of God, as he undoes these faulty kingdoms to set up this strong, everlasting one. And what Daniel, so what this dream is telling us, and Nebuchadnezzar, is that God's everlasting kingdom is coming. It's going to replace all kingdoms and political systems, as Daniel says at the end, in the time of those kings, God's going to set up a kingdom that won't be destroyed. It won't be left to another people. No one's going to come and take over it. You know, God's ruling now. Maybe he's left the throne and someone else is coming. No, it doesn't happen. It will crush the kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will endure forever. And then Daniel says, because it's the God of gods, not Murdoch, the Babylonian God that's revealed this to me, it's true. It's going to happen, king. Now, if you do any research in Daniel 2, uh, you'll find lots of different views as to what kingdoms does this statue represent. We know that Nebuchadnezzar is the golden head, and every part of it is the kingdoms that come after. But Daniel doesn't give us any names. And that's really important. Because if God wants to be specific about a kingdom or a nation, he does. Read Isaiah. Boom, nation after nation. Da, 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 tells you what they are exactly, explicitly. But he doesn't do it here. You have to ask the question, why? Because what we're called to think about in Daniel 2 is not simply about the who, but to look higher and see the world and how it runs at a kingdom level. We're not given a chronology of history. We're given the theological DNA of all the kingdoms of the world, how they're building their own agenda, their own glory, their own fame. And while we can look back from our point in history and say, yes, we know that it was Medo-Persia, the Greeks, the Romans, these guys came after, right? And then Jesus was born, and, he's, and we can kind of, we can map that out from our point in time. It's not the point. It's actually about the rock and how this statue shows us that all the kingdoms of the earth shatter at God's coming kingdom. The point is that all I can build into my life is actually going to break into a million pieces 
when confronted with the glory and the weight of God and his kingdom, you'll be left wrecked. It's shocking. I imagine that if Nebuchadnezzar was there and heard all this, what's a sh- imagine I thought of how can we kind of, how, how do we grasp that? Imagine if you voted in America just before Trump got elected. And if you remember all the, the, the broadcasts, it was Hillary's going to win, right? Hillary, 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 Trump! And the pictures of these people are shattered because their kingdom has come down. And I thought, that's, that's probably what it would have felt like. I mean, if you're a pro-Trump guy, then no, not at all. But if you're like Hillary, it probably would have, that, that confrontation, the conflict, the, the uncertainty, like that, that mindset of what's going on, that's how Nebuchadnezzar would have felt at this point. So what's he going to do? Is Daniel just dreaming or is this actually what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed? And the last scene is the climax and it's, it's pretty great because Nebuchadnezzar just falls down before Daniel and says, Daniel, your God's the God of gods. He reveals mysteries. for you, could, you did it. Daniel, you nailed it. He's come face to face, Nebuchadnezzar has, with the God whom sits above all spiritual forces, authorities, and his own kingdom starts coming into contact with God. And this is going to set the scene for the rest of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar is going to bump into God's kingdom every single step of the way. He's not converted here. But no, not at all. You read the next few chapters. He then sets up a statue. Um, he, Nebuchadnezzar now knows there's a God. He's a polytheist. He suddenly says, out of all my pantheon of gods, there is one that's probably going to be at the top. This is what this has done for him. He's on a journey towards God's kingdom, just like some of you are. And Daniel's given position and prestige, and the narrative goes on as it sets it up for the next few verses. But let's think about what this means now. 2019, you and me, the question we asked at the start was, which kingdom will you live for? We can continue to carve out a kingdom like Nebuchadnezzar did, like all the other kingdoms that came after his do in the statue. But when you're confronted with this reality, there is a single God who removes and sets up kings of the revelation that this God is like no one or anything else on this earth and that he's going to come and fill the earth with his presence and with his kingdom, undoing our earthly achievements. Well, you have to ask yourself, which one will you live in? And I think there are three realities we see about life in God's kingdom from Daniel 2. Firstly, is just who we trust in. And it's the rock of God. You know, Christianity sits on a different level, different playing field than mysticism and Confucianism, Taoism, crystal worship, horoscopes, dream interpretation, even a good vibe. Because Christians aren't simply seeking the stars or harmony with the planet or our inner being. Christianity is about a concrete truth, certainty, knowing, relating to it, and being like a person, not a vision or a dream. Christianity teaches the way life is made right is not by finding yourself by going on some journey to Europe or working to amass the perfect bank account, but by being reconciled back to God through Jesus Christ in what he has done, this rock that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about. Jesus says of himself in Luke chapter 18, everyone who falls on this stone will break to pieces when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus comes when he's on earth and says, I am that rock. He piles up these rock images. I'm the rock that's going to bring about God's everlasting kingdom and overthrow all these golden statues in your life that won't cut it. And the tragic irony, if we read the story of Jesus, is that the very rock who creates the kingdom was he himself crushed. But you see, it's in the death and the resurrection of Jesus that God brings his kingdom to reality. 
In his death that Jesus destroys the spiritual authorities of the heavenly places, Colossians 2 tells us, so we can access God's kingdom. And what the kingdom of this world only can pretend to give, God's kingdom delivers on. And he does it not through military conflict, but by redeeming the land of man's soul, your life that was lost at the fall, invading you with his grace and inviting you to spread the joy of that kingdom into the world so the kingdom can spread. Will you trust the rock? Will you let that rock crush you, first of all, under his glory and grace and then rebuild you into his kingdom? Or will you keep building your own? Because as we saw, it won't end well. May today be the day you stop running and trusting these golden statues that never deliver what they promise and trust the rock of God who gives the rock-solid hope we need. Secondly is, what do we hope in? Well, we see the hope is in the kingdom of God. The pointy part of this dream is that the rock smashes everything. And as depressing as that sound, that God's going to judge us and undo us, what the harsh reality should do is awaken us to a desire for a kingdom that's never going to end. That's coming, that's arrived in Jesus already and that you're invited into. We're living so much like Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon today. We're building, we're amassing, we're securing, we're creating, yet we're fearful, we're weak, we're keenly aware of our humanity. We're aware of the brokenness. Our kingdoms look so nice. They're like cut lawns and it looks great, but at a soul level, it's not cutting it. It's not delivering. And as Nebuchadnezzar was awoken to that, so God is awakening you and me. Here's what the Narnia guy, C.S. Lewis, said about this. He put it this way. He says, maybe everything seems to come really simply to you by signing checks. Well, 1950s, I don't know, by using your credit card all the time. Uh, You have sound nerves, you've got intelligence and health and popularity and good upbringing, and you're quite satisfied with who you are. And then you say to yourself in the back of your head, why drag God into it? Everyone says you're a nice chap. You may not feel the need for any better kind of goodness. Often people who have all those natural kinds of goodness cannot be brought to recognize their need for Jesus at all until one day the natural goodness lets them down and their self-satisfaction is shattered. And that is Nebuchadnezzar. This one dream confronted him with the one thing all the wisdom in his world could not deliver and it wrecked him. And, and maybe God's doing the same for you today. Life is having a way of making you realize there's a high kingdom and a hope. And the answer is the same one that we saw in Daniel. God's kingdom is coming. It's worth it. It's stronger. It will last eternally. And so by repentance and faith, we enter. Faith is not the end of reason. Faith does not say you have to believe seven impossible things before breakfast. Faith is grasping the most concrete reality in the universe. And our third point ties into that because of the revelation of God. How we live, we live in the revelation of God. Daniel spends lots of time about wisdom, revelation, dream, interpretation, explanation, answer. You see, God is a speaking God. And our faith needs to be in what this speaking God has said through his revelatory words. And just as God spoke to Daniel and said, I'm coming to establish my kingdom, and now we know Jesus was the rock who did that, well, God continues to speak, and what God says is that I'm coming back to finish what I started. And right now, we live at the intersection of the now of Jesus coming as that rock, and the not yet of God coming on the horizon to establish his kingdom that we will live in. 
So here's what I'm getting at. The revelation that you and me need to live well is not a dream, is not some magical idea about what job I should get next. The revelation we need is that in the gospel of Jesus, we have awoken to reality. In the gospel of Jesus, we live ready to go into this world, facing all the chaos and the conflict and the challenges that life gives us, knowing that the best is yet to come. That we are exiles like God's people were, awaiting our true home, father and space. That means there's going to be ridiculous living. Look at chapter 1 in Daniel. I'm not going to eat the food, he said. That's just crazy. No, it's about the holiness and glory of God, guys. Our allegiances to God are our resolve. That as the sun breaks over the horizon and the light cascades upon everything and, and illuminates it, so too the coming of the Son of God should cascade over our life and illuminate all pockets of what we do. And so is your faith today resting in this sure and short, sure revelation of God and His Word? As verse 44 says, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor it will be left to other people. It will crush all the kingdoms and bring to, to an end but itself will endure forever. Is your living now with forever in mind shaping you? Or are you a little too distracted with those 10,000 mice running around that you've forgotten the rhino, lost the rhino, have no idea what it's all about? Because that's the point of Daniel too. For those in conflict like Daniel, for those who function like they're God's gift to humanity, who've made life about themselves like Nebuchadnezzar, there is a bigger picture God wants to awaken you to and it's called the kingdom of God. And the question is, which kingdom will you live for? Because I know which one I want to be in. Will you join me in the kingdom of God? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that the rock that came to undo Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom and us is actually your son Jesus and that in him he saves and redeems us and brings us into your everlasting kingdom where there is hope and joy and security and all the things that this life promises but can't deliver, you do. Your kingdom is worth it, Lord. Even in the conflict, we have hope and a way forward because of Jesus, our good God, walking before us in this life. And for those of us who are struggling today with the conflict of the week and the chaos that we've just experienced, set our sight, set our heart on the fact that the best is yet to come and that you are a God who is present here and now. And that as Jesus suffered and died, so too we have a God who knows suffering. Not distantly and coldly, but intimately, personally. And may we see that in you, we have everything we need and we don't have to look to the golden statues because you're our good father. Amen.